should an AI decide whether it kills a human being or not? And, you know, a lot of people go, no, no, you can't have an AI deciding that. And then he said, well, then which human gets to decide who lives or dies? Which is a much more interesting question, right? And so, you know, it's then the question is, well, you know, what is it to be human? What is it to make decisions? What is it to be genuinely responsible for the consequences that we make? Now, in the military, they face this every day. But in business and in life, maybe not so much. And maybe we've got to the point where businesses not need to start thinking about what is the human impact of the technologies they deploy. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. What causes someone to pause, rewind, or abandon a TED talk? That's the question that our guest today asked while leading TEDx Melbourne. A highly sought after speaker, coach, trainer, and the curator and licensee of the first independently run TED program in Australia, TEDx Melbourne. He is the alumni of Victoria University, where he took up business information management, computing, and human resources. We'll have a look inside his strategies and techniques, honed through collaborations with esteemed clients such as SAP, Princess Cruises, Toyota. University of Melbourne, and many, many more. Whether you're an inspiring speaker, a seasoned professional, or leader aiming to refine your communication skills, or just be inspired, this episode serves as a treasure trove of empowering guidance and inspiring stories from the one and only John Yo. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's a real pleasure. And John, we've known each other for a couple of years, and I always enjoy our kind of deep conversations and, and very curious questions. And I'm sure we'll be uh, diving into some interesting world uh, of knowledge as we go throughout today. John, I'm curious, you know, for someone who is fascinated by new ideas, who is um, always curious about what's possible in this world, I'd like to know what it was like for you as a child. So where did you grow up and what was the big dream? Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, Dad was a migrant. Mum was Australian-born Chinese. And I think we had a your classic middle-class upbringing. I don't think there was anything particularly outstanding in that regard. Um, I maybe had one extra dimension that as my dad was a 
a migrant, he was always interested in, in the world out there and was always interested in the way things work because the way things worked back in Malaysia versus the way things work in Australia were always very slightly different. And so it always caused him to kind of go, what is that? Is that a human nature thing? Is that a culture thing? And, and that was probably one of the early most significant influences on me. What, what drives or causes something to happen in the first place? And how could you shape and direct that to a specific outcome? Mm, fascinating. So when you're at school, were you kind of the natural leader or you're more of a follower? No, I was definitely not a leader. I'm, if you do any of those psychographic profiles, I'm not only an introvert, I'm an off the scale introvert. So very shy, very quiet, very unassuming. And then on top of that, there's a cultural overlay that you don't really speak until you're spoken to. Hmm. And so I wasn't really a leader. Um, and I think that that really impacted uh, two things. It probably impacted my full potential, but it also made me, as most natural introverts are, a, a natural listener. And so I think there's a double-edged sword to that, but that was kind of like the the i guess the seed of, of of how i think and how i operate but definitely not a leader hmm, okay and, and so for you were you one of those natural problem solvers you know obviously with your curiosity did were you quick to solve problems and puzzles or were you someone that would scrutinize them and analyze them for a long time before solving them a little bit of both as a kid just coming back to those origins i always love to pull things apart so all my you know remote control cars my clock radio it was always in pieces and i always thought well how does this work and then i would try and work out well what are the core components and then how do i put it to get back together again and occasionally i wasn't successful in that but it was really around that that drove um me forward in terms of how i think about problems how I deconstruct ideas into their simplest terms, and then how do I move forward? So when it came to sort of working in groups, I would observe and find patterns. I'd find first principles, and then I would try and find solutions based on that. And so my entire existence has been around, what does it look like to distill an idea and then I guess reverse engineer that till you find the, the core principles of what drives that forward. And with that um, became sort of my teaching, learning, and leadership style. It's kind of fascinating when I think back to being a kid on the farm, I used to do the same thing. I'd pull things apart. I can still remember dad being highly um, unamused and a little bit stressed when I would pull apart brand new equipment for the cow shed. Uh, so that wasn't such a good idea when I was young, but uh, I was always very curious too. You know, talking about being someone who's quite introvert and kind of off the scale though, you're still very socially competent, right? So a lot of people think, you know, introvert, extrovert. Uh, so from an introvert, obviously it's generally when we try, we draw our energy from those quieter spaces, etc. But you, you can be really deeply introvert, but be very socially competent where you're you know, when you're in a group of people, you're, you're okay to have conversations and be comfortable in those situations. Is that you? Are you, are you really socially competent or is it just your curiosity that gets you by in conversations? Oh, that's, it's, it's, that's a really good observation, Craig. It is my curiosity that, that, that gives me that energy. Um, but I do have to prepare coming into any gathering and I'd have to recover after any gathering as well. So there's a little bit of a strategy in there as well. Hmm. And we see a lot of, I mean, you've spent a lot of time with 
uh, up and coming speakers, uh, raw talent, but also some of the best speakers on the planet. And in my observation, many are introverts, and but they come alive on stage. You know, you talk about their having to prepare and then recover. Do you find that very similar with many of the speakers in the world? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair fair call. Um, about three percent of the world, in my experience, naturally can just stand up randomly and talk stuff and have people be engaged and be really compelling. Everyone else has to work at it. And so there's varying degrees of how people get there. Some people get there just for, through repetition. And some people do it by actually having some sort of orderly process. And I'm a big fan of James Clear. He never he says, you know, you don't rise to the level of your potential. You fall to the level of your systems. And I would argue that most people don't speak well because they don't have a system. And so it's about being aware of what you can do, what you can't do when it comes to speaking, communication, influence, and giving yourself the best chance to put your best foot forward when the opportunity turns up. So when I'm working with speakers, the ranked beginners might be ranked beginners, but they might have a good structured thinking, or they might have an orderly thought process, or they might have determination. And so I guess it's tapping into the natural talents, letting them see that they can build momentum around that, and then supporting them with other uh, practices that will get them over the line. And so, you know, as you said, I, I work with people who have spoken before, I've worked with some of the smartest leaders, thinkers and speakers on the planet. And invariably what makes them all common is the humanity. What, what drives them, what motivates them, what helps them focus, what makes them come alive. If you can tap into that with them, then everything else gets a lot easier. And I think a lot of people um, don't give themselves enough time to reflect on that or even understand what that is. And I, I think it's lost potential. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, when, you, when you're working with uh, different leaders and they're like, okay, I want to be able to influence my team more effectively. I want to influence the industry or want to influence clients more effectively. What are the most common things that you see that prevent them from doing that? I think uh, when there's communication, there's two primary factors. There's the knowledge itself and there's the motivation in that person to do something with that knowledge. And I think great leaders are able to enhance both. They're able to draw both out of someone. And so if you want to be a pure information person, a pure knowledge person, you could actually put it in email. But an email is almost never motivating. And so the inverse challenge, especially in the spoken world, is, well, what do we need to do to motivate that person? How do we get them to connect and resonate with what we're talking about? And that's a, a somewhat of an art. But there's a psychology to that art. And I guess for great leaders, it's the ability to harness that capability that will distinguish great leaders from, you know, good managers. Mm. And in re you know, we talk about intelligent people admire simplicity and quite a common, you know, we see a lot of people who try to be technical or, or try to be more intelligent by you know, bigger words, uh, more complex sentences, but the reverse occurs, right? We, we, when people can't understand, then you don't become intelligent anymore. How can people be able to simplify what they're saying without feeling like they're sounding dumb? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think 
um, there's a there's a confusion between volume of content and therefore capability or, or impact. And, it, and, and it's not necessarily volume that helps unless you have a genuinely curious person who always wants to learn everything you have to say about whatever you're talking about. And they're, they're rare, those people. And those couplings are even more rare. So in my world, I think the responsibility of the great communicator is to understand what are the core elements that are not negotiable and make sure that they're understood and connected with first. So an analogy might be, if you think about a car, what, what are the things that make a car a car? It's the four wheels, the brake, the accelerator, and the steering wheel. Now, if you take away any one of those things, you, don't, you can't really build a car. So those would be the platforms or the core elements that you make sure that are seen or heard and understood and that people connect and resonate with. And then from there, you then have permission to add the detail that makes that journey a little bit more comfortable, maybe a more comfortable seat, maybe a conditioning, maybe a windshield, maybe a car body, you know, like those things are permission based at that point. Mm. But it's permission based from the listener's point of view, not from the speaker's point of view, not from authority or because I told you to. If people are genuinely curious to know, well, given that there's a steering wheel, given there's a, you know, a brakes and accelerator and four wheels, what else do I need to know to become competent? then you have the opportunity to build that rapport relationship and knowledge base. And it's mm. only at that point that you can layer the content. And so it's not the fact that you have too much content, it's the way you share the content and the way you help people understand the significance or relevance of that content that makes great communication great. Mm. When you talk about, you know, relevancy and making it Great. Like if we think about a presentation or a speech versus just in conversation. So we'll separate those two. We're in presentation sure. speech mode now. Yeah. A lot of people prepare their presentation, but being relevant in that moment and being able to read the room and adapt is really powerful, you know, and obviously yeah. a TEDx is something a little bit different where you are on stage and you're sharing an idea, but when you're in most presentations, you, you, you've got to have that ability to read the room and adapt on the fly. How important is it to have more of an agile presentation mindset versus, you know, here's my idea. I've built out this great presentation. I'm going to deliver it. I think as a ratio, it's got to be a minimum of 80, 20. Yeah. You can have your stuff all orderly and thought well thought through, but the 20% has got to be flexible and adaptable to the needs and the moments in front of them. But having said that, that 20% needs to be really well thought through. Like in, in other words, you know, what's important to them? What motivates them? What are their priorities? How do they make decisions? Who influences those decisions? What's the political relationship I have with them? What's the social interaction I have with them? What's the trust and rapport that's established before I've even walked in the room or while I'm in the room that needs to take shape in their mind before I share my message. And so, you know, you need to be prepared so that when the flexible does come along, you can make meet that need very, very precisely. Otherwise you're speaking at someone rather than with someone. Mm. And it's so important, you know, have, have the conversation and not this, not this kind of share. It's about how do you connect and, and have that conversation with people in the audience. For sure. W 
we're seeing obviously a shift over the last couple of years in the way we work and, and how that work is going to look and it's still evolving and will continue to evolve for many years um, as it seems to be a very moving space at the moment as people try to understand, adapt, depending on the situation of the organization. But one of the, the two biggest things that, or probably three things that we're finding a lot of companies are struggling with is one, how do we keep communication going? Two, how do we collaborate? And how do we, and three, how do we monitor culture? What do you see as is going to be the most effective things leaders and companies need to be aware of in regards to communication going forward to ensure that collaboration and the culture can be, I suppose, maintained in a way that is productive for the business and the people. Sure. Sure. I think one of the things that COVID, especially in more recent times, has done is highlighted the need for rapport and relationship to be a strategic part of your leadership strategy. And it existed before COVID, mm. but I think it's even more acute now. And so, you know, getting people to relate to your idea is really a skill set. And in my world, that's that's two things. That's the way you say it, but it's also how do you get them interested in what you just said? And so, you know, the way you say it is the art of speaking, communication, influence. You know, that's where your dramatic pauses come in. That's where, you know, you might word or language yourself differently. Like, you know, you could say an example of that it was uh, post boxes are red. That's a fact. No one really cares. It's quite forgettable. But if I said, did you know there's a historical reason why Australia Post chose red for its post boxes? Even though this fact post boxes are red is shared, you're suddenly forced to think about that idea. So there is a craft to it. Mm. But then the other part to that is, well, how do you get them to care about that? How do you get them to resonate with what you just said? And there's, so there's another principle that I like to lean into called uh, second order thinking. It's it's not not my idea. This is uh, quite well known. And second order thinking is what is the consequence of that consequence? So the analogy I like to give is self-driving cars. You know, they're almost upon us. Everyone's quite excited. I personally can't wait. That's interesting. But if you think about it this way and say, well, what's the consequence of that? Well, my local council, over half its revenue is from parking fines. What if you had a car that dropped you off and then went back home and therefore never got a parking fine? What does it mean for that council? In the United States, for every car, there's seven car parks. What happens when six out of the seven car spots in any given car park suddenly become av available? What does it mean for car parking companies? And then even on top of that, let's just say, a handful of those car parking companies shut down. What does it mean for land availability in high value places like Manhattan, which I think I heard 30% of all parking is car parking space. What happens if suddenly 30% of Manhattan, the most expensive real estate on the planet, suddenly becomes available? What does it mean for land prices? What does it mean for land tax? What does it mean for traffic densities? What does it mean for public transport? You know, these are significant things just from one technology. And so the second order consequence can often have significant ramifications. And I think as leaders, helping people understand the nature of those second order consequences is really important to motivate them and focus them around why we're doing something over on top of what we're doing. And so, you know, there's a mechanical part to that. And so our ability as leaders to help people understand that second order consequence is a significant part of what we should be doing from a yeah. communication point of view anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, fascinating, fascinating. So, so obviously, you know, people would say, oh, why did the world spend so much money on putting someone into space? You know, what was it, 60, 70 years, 70 odd years ago now? Well, obviously, mm-hmm. from that, a lot of technologies have come to commercialize that we now use. So there was a lot of great things that come about and, you know, lighter materials, more cost-effective, energy-efficient, etc., because of doing something like that. But we talk about second-order thinking. I think there's more to that as well. Yes, what are the positive consequences? But if we look at... But we also need to really understand what are the unintended consequences that might be negative. So yes, true. we looked at, you know, true. Facebook, for instance. Mark Zuckerberg and the team there... Their intended, uh, the intention of Facebook at the time was to connect uh, people, I, I think kind of introverts in a way, or bring people together that could communicate socially uh, across campus. Now, the unintended consequence of that in a negative way is they never ever would have thought that it could lead to mental health problems, uh, potential you know, increases in suicide, uh, you know, disruption in family dynamics, all sorts of things that have come because of it. Um, sure. Th- those unintended consequences. And the beautiful thing I like at the moment, so I, I love the advancement of technology. We're seeing the artificial intelligence and really grow at the moment, even though the technology or well, the first artificial technology has been around for 70 years. I think it was 60 years. But we're seeing the leaders of the big tech companies say, hey, you know what? Let's slow things down. We're going too fast. We need to understand the consequences, you know, the second order consequences, the unintended consequences. And I think that's really good leadership right now because yes, they understand the importance of advancing technology, but they're also going, hey, you know what? We're seeing some signs here of things we're not really sure of. So let's try and get our head around this. What does it mean for regulation? What is what are some of the other potential unintended consequences we haven't thought of yet? And I think that's beautiful. And so from your, you know, your passion in this area, what are you seeing um, in regards to the way that the space of artificial intelligence has been led from some of the big tech companies and the regulatory uh, and government spaces right now? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good point. I, I think there are things that we can plan for there's things we can't plan for and then there's there's the how we respond to either concept you know, mm-hmm. outcome and so uh in in when when it comes to technology one of the things that's really interesting is you know just because we can should we mm-hmm. and so you know the philosophical aspects of technology is probably very much on the forefront of a lot of people's ideas and then you've already mentioned the social impacts you know that, that, that we're suddenly studying um, in a way that we've probably not studied before. And mm. so that's interesting to me. You know, technology, as you said, it's been around, well, the integrated circuit, as we know, it's been around since the 70s. And so suddenly we're, you know, 50, 60 years down the track going, okay, what does that really mean for humanity? Ultimately, who does that serve? What is the value it creates? How do we make sure there's widespread accessibility? And what does it ultimately mean for humanity and, as a species? Mm. Are some of the more existential questions we're starting to ask ourselves. So, you know, um, I, I think, you know, this acceleration forces us to the edge of making the hard decisions that we, you could argue we've been ignoring to an extent uh, in a, at a rate that we hadn't thought about before. And that's exciting to me. You know, I was listening to a conversation with Kevin Kelly the other day, the 
guy uh, who started Wired. And um, he was talking about, you know, as an example, drones, you know, in particular military drones, should an AI decide whether it kills a human being or not? Mm. And, you know, a lot of people go, no, no, you can't have an AI deciding that. And then he said, well, then which human gets to decide who lives or dies? Which is a much more interesting question, right? And so, you know, it's then the question is, well, you know, what is it to be human? What is it to make decisions? What is it to be genuinely responsible for the consequences that we make? Now, in the military, they face this every day. Yeah. But in business and in life, maybe not so much. And maybe we've got to the point where businesses not need to start thinking about what is the human impact of the technologies they deploy in the same way the military have been doing forever. Hmm. And so it's, it's just brought it into a different sphere. And I think there's a lot of learnings that we can learn from people in the military around this uh, in terms of structure, uh, humanity, uh, decision making, all those things. Um, that are fascinating to me. And so, you know, we need to think about our thinking. We need to think about our values. We need to think about our structures. We need to think about how things integrated and the interdependencies because they suddenly uh, are the reason why things go wrong because, to your point, the unintended consequence of not thinking about them has been out there. So I know that's a really complex answer, but I think it's some of the things that humanity needs to face in, in the very immediate future. I'm saying the next two, three years, if we're really going to come out the other side of this really, really, really well. It kind of reminds me of the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov, but I won't go into that now. I'm curious now. You've, you've opened a loop there. We might come back to that. <laughs> when, sure. when we look at things like social media, um, where this where things such as, you know, they, their idea was if someone's viewing something or reading something, let's feed them more of that. Or if someone clicks on something, let's give them more of that. But obviously it can lead to uh, deepening biases in certain areas, you know, just like any sort of social circle, right? So it's the same thing, but we've yeah. got computer generating this content based on maybe a behavior that was intended or unintended or it was just an accidental click and next minute we're forced around stuff so when we talk about decisions uh whether it be both human or an artificial intelligence decisions how do we monitor things like bias how do we prevent uh you know an overload of information which then uh, either supports or detracts from the decisions we make? And what role does education have in this in the future? Wow, that's a really big and important question. So the, at the risk of sounding oversimplified, I think the single best thing we can do is include. Include people in the data sets, include people in the development, include people in the research, all that sort of stuff. Um, even something as simple as uh, bias in research is really, really interesting. I was reading a book by uh, uh, Caroline Criota Perez, a book called Invisible Women, and she said that crash test dummies have historically been male-sized crash test dummies, male-sized weight. And so of the data we have from crash test dummies, 
only 14% of that is uh, has uh, female-sized crash test dummies. Hmm. Now, of that 14%, zero have women in the driver's seat. So all the airbags, all the seatbelts are never been tested for the safety of women in the driver's seat. So we have some very fundamental flaws in the way we accumulate data and therefore make decisions. And I think this is a global challenge at all levels, at all levels of research. So until we make people aware, we can't fundamentally solve the problem of inclusion. But inclusion is the solution. And then the second part of that is really around, okay, given we've got all this consequence and, and we need to understand the nature of that, how do we then become agile enough and inclusive enough to include all that um, uh, integration, whether that's, you know, the, the self-driving car is an example and parking and fines and speeding fines or whatnot. I think um, that part of it is really around how you be open to include that data. Um, I was listening to Sam Altman the other day, the creator of Open, or the CEO of OpenAI, and he said within three years, all AI will have consumed all data that's ever been produced and digitized. And he said the biggest problem isn't actually more data. It's actually how intelligent do we have our AIs be around how it uses that data. And this is where human values come into it, into human decision-making, human logic. And these are all things that you can't program. Hmm. The way you can program, but it's gotta be programmed in such a way that everyone's included. And we don't have that capability yet. And so that's the bit that's both interesting and a concern for me when it comes to technology. But I would argue it comes relevant for all leaders because if we're gonna be, truly global, truly relevant, truly timely, and truly inclusive, these need to be part of our leadership thinking models. And I, I don't think there's a maturity of thinking in that space yet. And that's that's the bit that concerns me the most. Yeah, and it's always an evolving, and it's always gonna be evolving, right? We we can try and be more inclusive in the world. We're never going to be fully inclusive. It's, it's impossible to do, uh, even if you use technology because Whoever's programming it, it's based on what they think is right or what they think is maybe inclusive. So it's always a challenge. And um, I yeah. think it's great that we we chase that dream. It's like perfection, right? Um, uh, you can always chase it, but you you know it that it's actually not there. Like it, to, to actually reach it yeah. is impossible in a way, but we should always be strive for perfection. With regards to the intersection of human and artificial intelligence now, so obviously we want to use this to be more inclusive, to make better decisions in the world. Um, how is that? How do you really see that change in corporate over the next 10 years? You know, we've got people dabbling in how they use artificial intelligence in regards to incorporating it into their uh, companies or the way they, they work, but where do you really see it going? It's an interesting one. AI in the short term, I don't think will make us help us make better decisions. It'll just help us make faster decisions. Because mm. anyone who's fully tested AI in its current generation will very quickly learn it's very immature. 
it's kind of like teaching my you know kid sister how to do an advanced i don't know something it's 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 almost impossible for them to comprehend um so that's the first part so speed is the first part where ai is going to help then it's going to help us integrate complexity so rather than you know rather than go, basing on the information we can process it's able to pull in much broader sets of information and lots broader sets of insights in order to give us the better decisions and, and i guess at that point it could arguably help us make better decisions but define better hmm. um you know what we just do is able to pull in more variables is that better i don't know hmm. uh, the assumption the assumption that more knowledge and more data and more information helps us make better decisions i'm not convinced is the complete answer uh, and then it comes back to the human-centered aspect. How do we build trust, rapport, relationship with the people around us in order to achieve what we need to achieve in the most human-centered way? That part then becomes the unique, unique attribute where technology could arguably help people have more information in a more timely manner, in a more comprehensive manner, in order to work better together. But it's the better together part that I think makes culture and leadership effective. And, you know, I think that's always been the case. It's just technology has accelerated, again, accelerated it. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping, I'm hoping to see a shift and, and maybe the cat's out of the bag already, I'm not sure. But I'd love to see a shift in organizations where we remove the chatbots and the artificial intelligence out of the customer service and put the humans in there and get all the mundane boring things and get the get the computers to do all that work so we can actually talk to humans again i, I think to me that wow. has been actually to me i think it costs time like you know from interactions with your clients i, I find that at the moment the way technology is used in a number of different companies and industries waste time so it's actually not speeding up a process for a for a client interacting with you it's actually detracting from that and making it making it longer but all it's done is maybe made it a little bit more cost effective for the organization so to me that's maybe yeah. short-minded and short-term thinking um so i'd love to see that shift i, I think if if leaders could really focus mm. on where are the human elements that require human interaction to to make those human-centered decisions. And as you say, put the technology into spaces where it can be maybe provide us data or just uh, remove the mundane processes that can be done at high speed through technology 20, 100 times faster than what a human could do, maybe even more, so that we can focus on really having those positive interactions, that rapport building, et cetera, that you mentioned. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if totally. I don't know if we'll be able to reverse that in some industries, but I'd love to see it change. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the opportunity to understand people better, to have more informed uh, decision making capability, will allow that humanity to come together. I mean, if we take this artificial intelligence and robotics to the extreme, arguably humans will just be doing the thing that's either fun, interesting you know, or value add. Yeah. And the technology does everything else. No, that's probably a good way away. 
Mm. But, you know, if we took that to the extreme, then I, I, I think, you know, what, what does it mean to create value? What does it mean to build rapport? What does it mean to add value? are the things we should always be focusing on. And then what tools and processes underneath that allow us to do that probably needs to be the focus as opposed to how do we take this one technology and make sure it advances as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah, I love it, I love it, it's good. All right, let, let's switch conversation a little bit here. Uh, you were the first licensee curator and coach of TEDx Melbourne, uh, I think back in around 2010, is that right? Somewhere around that time, maybe Nine. 2009? Yeah. 2009. 2009, yeah. very good. That's right. Uh, my friends uh, did TEDx Taipei in 2010. So yeah, 2009, great. But TED's right. been around since the beginning of the 1980s, is that correct? Correct, yeah. So where TED started from and the initial idea behind it how much has it evolved from what the original original thinking was and reason for creating ted i think the core values have always been the same but the delivery and the mechanism by which they do it has always been flexible mm -hmm. and I, I think that's one of the core strengths of ted as a brand globally its core intent of ideas worth spreading has never changed you know, it originally began as the accumulation of technology, entertainment, and design, but it spread out to much broader disciplines from that point. But the ideas worth spreading was always there. It just went from a conference where there were classic long-form talks to shorter talks to, you know, talks on video to TEDx events where TED is basically universally accessible, was really just a function of, of, of scale and, and, and uh, accessibility. Um, but the intent underneath that has always been the same. And I think the values and the core mission of an organization need to be integral to how you, how make, how you make decisions, how you operate and how you move forward. And uh, I, I think TED is a classic example of, of a brand that has that longevity. Yeah. And, you know, the ideas were spreading and obviously now been around for 40, 40 years and, and multiple different types of TED events, you know, your TEDx and your TED salons, etc. around the world. There's been a lot of ideas sh shared. And so to, to remain relevant and to, to ensure there is always uh, new thoughts, new ideas coming through, how difficult is it for people to now be able to get onto that TED platform? I think it gets harder and harder every year for two reasons. There's more and more people interested in sharing a message and obviously TEDx platform is, 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 is a really good option for, you know, for certain types of talks. I think the inverse challenge is the audience is somewhat more ambivalent and uh, maybe even... Uh, What's the word? Fatigued. Mm. Because, because the brand has been around for 40 years, it's not the bright, new, shiny object that it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago in my case. Um, and so I, I think it's tough for the speaker and the audience to engage. But this is exactly why the ideas worth spreading is so critical to that. Uh, and, 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 you know, what is it that's going to get people engaged? What is it that's unique? How do you articulate it in a meaningful way? How do you distill it down to the core elements and how do you do it in shorter and shorter periods of time? You know, the average TED talk when I started was 18 minutes. In uh, 
2019, it was the average abandon rate was 12 minutes. By 2020, the average abandon rate was nine minutes, uh, sorry, five minutes. And so we have this inverse challenge that, you know, attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And this is not a new phenomenon. We've gone from, you know, uh, War and Peace, you know, 100, you know, world's longest novel to tweets, 140 character tweets. We've gone from 45 minutes uh, symphonies to 30 second jingles. This is not a new phenomenon, mm. but I think it's new in the speaking communication and influence space. And therefore, the ability to speak and influence is a critical skill for a leader now, because if you want to share information, you can put it on a website. The only way to build trust and rapport and meaningful engagement is the ability to speak and influence well. And I think it's fast becoming a, crit a mission critical skill for leaders over on top of their capability. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of awareness around the need for that, uh, especially on a day-to-day -day, uh, practice point of view. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think back to some of the most profound speeches of all time. You know, I have a dream, uh, which, which when you actually, um, when you look at the actual words of this, you know, the script in a way of what was said, uh, if you connect that with a lot of memorable um, songs over time, there's always something in there that is easily recognizable. And that is the one idea is repeated often. And the importance of having, you know, not, uh, not only an idea we're sharing, but also an idea that is memorable and repeatable in a way. One of the most yeah. profound Ted X talks that I have seen of recent times was a seven year old girl at, I think it was Ted X Sydney in 2021 where she had the baby on stage and talked about distraction. Uh, and I thought that was absolutely fascinating in the way she integrated both a live baby on stage. She's only seven years old. She had video that had been put up behind a really engaging and thought provoking uh, speech, which, you know, for me as a, as a young parent right now, um, I found that fascinating and it is so relevant in our world as leaders right now in regards to uh, what you're seeing going forward in in Ted at present right so you've got a you've got an upcoming event that is artif that is AI generated etc which will go into a little bit longer but what are some of the areas that you think are going to be really relevant for those that are looking to be on the TEDx stage in the future Oh, wow. I, I think there's a whole bunch of generalized themes uh, over and above the technology or the process that we have in mind, although we need to be able to explain them through some sort of process or some sort of technology. Mm. It's the ability to meaningfully exchange ideas that are remarkable to the person that's listening to you. Mm. And, and that's a general skill, uh, not just a TEDx stage. And this is an important general skill. Over on top of that, especially when we're talking about the TEDx stages, how is it remarkable outside of your industry or area of expertise? Mm. Because if it's interesting to your crowd but no one else, then on our stage, it, it's very it, it struggles to do well. Yeah. Um, and, and then you know, how do you help people uh, relate or resonate to that idea, no matter what it is, is also 
another skill. That's part of the second order consequence. That's part of the craft. Mm. But, um, you know, how do you shape a narrative in short periods of time to get people's attention? And I like to say the ability to say the right thing at the right time to the right person in the right way. And I don't care whether that's the TED stage or the boardroom mm. or in the, you know, the family lounge room, you know, the, 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 the leader is the great communicator and the great communicator needs to inversely be also the great listener. Yeah, because if you're not listening to the needs of the people around you, then people have choices these days. They can go somewhere else. And so, you know, especially with brands and leadership, you know, the ability to go somewhere else on you know, the TED equivalent is just close the video. Yeah. The ability to leave in a corporate space is leave the company or not buy the product. And so, you know, we suddenly have choices that we didn't have 50, 20, 40, 50 years ago. And so it's, it's, it's that paradigm or that new construct that we, we need to get our head around as human beings if we're really to have mastery of, of the world around us. Yeah, the importance of relevancy in not only for the, the people in the room, but that time as well. Is it more around like the ideas that will actually solve a problem versus maybe the ideas that create a new opportunity. Is there any sort of any difference in between those two, whether they have more connection to people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's room for both. I, yeah. Um, wow, that's a really good question. I, I, I think there's always a market for problem solvers because humans are really good at creating problems. And so, you know, if you want something with longevity, um, and this is the master of Apple as a brand, they've always been able to plug that hole, mm. but also find that really nice balance of aspirational, I want that. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, Apple is a great example of, of, of embracing both. Mm. And I would argue that if you can find a model that allows you to embrace both, that's going to be your best case scenario. Um, but I realize that some products or services that just no one aspires to have, you know, full cream milk in a, in a, in a, in a better container. Like I, I don't, I, you know, there are certain commodity items that just, you just have to fulfill a need. Um, so, you know, the, but the brands that build the recognition are the ones that are able to build community, mm. to build the rapport, build the relationship around them. You know, Apple, Nike, Tesla, we have a different visceral response to those brands because we have a reaction to what those brands believe and stand for. And so, you know, helping people understand what a brand believes and stands for probably is just as important as what the product does. And so it's about understanding the synergies between those aspects that I think create the longevity in, in any sort of relationship you have, whether that's personal or, or in business. Yeah, I like that. You know, with, with a lot of technology tools becoming more and more prominent, um, the opportunity to, to integrate technology as a speaker and, and a thought leader, is the, is the speaker who, who just speaks with their voice going to become extinct in the next 50 years or even five years? 
Uh, do they <laughs> need to have a technology component or can they survive on their own? I don't know if they explicitly need a technology component, but they've got to realize that they're competing against other technologies and other distractions. Mm. You know, if you wanted to hear an expert 50 years ago, you maybe read their book. And if yeah. you're lucky, you saw them speak. You know, now you can get their Twitter, you can get their, you know, you can find their website, you know, you can get onto their social media. Like there's a thousand ways to both attract new clients, customers, friends, but there's also equally the distraction of those technologies. So, you know, with Ted, I think our biggest competitor is Netflix. Mm. And according to Reid Hoffman, the owner or the CEO, sorry, of Netflix, the biggest competitor for Netflix is sleep. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we have suddenly different things causing people to not pay attention than we did say 20 years ago. So the great leader, the great influencer, the great leader needs to be able to connect, engage and resonate despite the technology, despite the trends, despite the noise. And this is why culture, coming back to what we were discussing before, and the ability to build trust and poor relationship is so critical to how we bring things together. Uh, you know, um, and, and you know, maybe this is not a new phenomenon. You ask any football fan, you know, what brings that that crowd together? It, it, it's the unifying element of sport. How do we do that as leaders? How do we do that as influencers? What structural process do we have in place to enable us to build that trust and rapport and relationship with the people in front of us so that we're able to establish that culture and build that culture um what are the one thing i've noticed as a consultant going to many many organizations is the companies that have been able to get people to come back in the office the most successful ones had a strong culture before COVID even existed yeah and the ones that didn't are currently struggling to get people back in the office. That's the one unifying thing that I've noticed. So we need to be honest with ourselves. Are people coming back to the office because they want to or because they have to? And that's a reflection of the culture. And so, you know, I think we have a responsibility as leaders, as influencers, as communicators, is to establish and build that trust, poor relationship, so that culture then becomes naturally thrive, uh, creates an environment where that naturally thrives rather than forced. Um, and I, I think those organic cultures have more longevity, although you can shape and direct them. But, uh, you, know, you know, that that culture element then becomes a critical piece over, over on top of what we do and what we think and what we're capable of doing. And I suppose there's one more question to ask there too. Do they need to be in the office is probably the other question. Do we actually need them there to to run the well, company, I mean, to, to have a culture, to yeah. collaborate? That's a very complicated question. If you physically have a factory, they need to be in, in the factory. Of course. If you're creating, if you're a purely information-based organization, you could argue not. But does that enable the enhancement and nurturing of the communication relationship with the people? If you can do that digitally, and I argue you can, then do it that way. You know, TEDx Melbourne went from a net promoter score of 48, which is also already pretty good, to 98 purely on the video format by knowing what to measure, what we're seeing on screen. Hmm. And a lot of people aren't aware of what those things are. 
And again, it comes back to first principles. What's the four wheels? What's the brake? What's the accelerator? What's the steering wheel in your culture, digitally or virtually, that allows the technology to be irrelevant? Yeah. Yeah, good. Good. Uh, for people that uh, are thought leaders um, and, and speakers, etc., when it comes to artificial intelligence, if they're currently dabbling in it or they're an expert in it or they're thinking about it, what are some things to be considerate of um, and to be aware of to one, either maximize it or just to take caution of? Yeah, I think with AI and, te and technology in general, I think there's always you know, four distinct challenges. The first is the, the sheer number of tools that are out there and the sheer number of tools that come online in any given year is exponential. Then the question is when you even narrow it down, how do you find out what it can do and how, what it can't do? How do you test that? Hmm. And then once you work out the best fit for your your solution, then how do you have mastery? And when it comes to AI and chatbots in particular, <clears throat> how do you ask it the right questions? How do you get the prompts right? Yeah. Um, I think uh, the ability to ask the right question uh, is going to determine the quality of the answer you get. And technology is very precise in that. And then the, then the, the next question is, how do you make sure that that solution doesn't look commoditized or mass market? Mm. How do you personalize that? How do you personalize that for your specific needs, but also how do you personalize it for the people that's receiving the, the output of that technology then becomes the, the challenge. So those four core areas, I think if you can get a handle of them, then any technology, especially AI, then becomes your servant rather than the, than the master. And uh, we don't want to be subservient to the technology that won't help anyone. Yeah. Actually, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go back to something I was just thinking of there. You were talking about TEDx and Netflix being uh, competitors, and Netflix biggest competitor being sleeping. I'm like, why don't you just fuse them together? Why don't you spring TEDx and Netflix <laughs> together? I mean, great collaboration. I'm sure it's been thought of before. Um, yeah. For someone like you who's very optimistic, my but you have a lot of reasoning. You're an optimist with a lot of reasoning, and you're. How, when we look at the world, we still see, you know, a lot of bias in place. We still see people with a little bit more of a fixed mindset, although I think that's changing. I think we're seeing more of a growth open mindset. How can we, how can people embrace curiosity and, you know, that continual learning a lot more in, in our lives? I think, I think there's two parts to that. The first part is that realize that there's all if you do nothing and someone studies something whether that's a technology or just knowledge you're always going to be behind the eight ball mm. so curiosity is not an option it's it's a necessity until we realize that um we won't take curiosity seriously mm. and then the second part of that is what is that curiosity either in you or the person you're listening to that you can genuinely relate to? And it's it's that relatability that makes curiosity fun. You know, you know, why do they think like that? How did they come to that conclusion? What assumptions did they make? 
what history and context causes them to think that way. You know, even if something as simple as I like the way they think, I like the way they, you know, they've got a nice shirt on, like find something that's interesting about that person mm. and become genuinely interested in that person um, when it comes to technology. And then even within yourself, okay, why do you think, how do you think? What makes you come alive? What more could you do to, to make sure that that's part of your day, uh, your day to day practice? Because the people that come alive tend to thrive. They tend to grow. They tend to evolve. They tend to be happier. They tend to be, mm. you know, motivated. Who doesn't want all those attributes? And so, be curious about yourself as well, because that is the source or spring. I I would argue of almost infinite energy. Yeah, and I, I think everyone wants to have kind of internet motivation and infinite energy it's just a question of how do you then shape and direct it so that it creates a meaningful outcome i like that uh, you know people ask me you know when i was a high performance you know working high performance sport and as a coach and and then as a leader they're like you know what is the majority of that role and i always say that 50 percent of my job as a coach and 50 percent of my job as a leader is to care and the essence of caring yeah. is curiosity. It, it is that ability to ask questions and to the ability to have active listening, right? So your job is to care. And if you care, then you build connection, you build rapport, you build greater understanding, uh, more in-depth yeah. way of thinking. Uh, and you also made me think there a little bit too around, I actually lean in more to people that I somewhat disagree with or maybe even disagree with, um, or who challenge me and I feel a little bit unease. Why? Because I want to understand why they think like that. What, what are they catching that I haven't caught yet? What has led them to that decision or that way of thinking? That, that fascinates me. But I watch so many people yeah. as soon as they see, as soon as they feel a bit unease or someone thinks differently to them, they're like, oh, I, I, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> this is... This is yeah. out of my comfort zone. Um, is this part of the resilient mindset we we need to see more of in in the world? You know, is that ability not only yeah. to pick ourselves up when we when we get knocked over, so to speak, but also that ability to lean in when things don't feel right? Yeah, I think you raise a good point. We. When we do a mailer, we hope that maybe 5% of our mail lists unsubscribe. Yep. And the, re the reason we do that is we, as an innovation brand, we want to push the edges, but we don't know where the edges are until we go there. Mm. Also, the people who leave arguably aren't your crowd. Mm. You know, I want, when I go to an event, I want people who are excited to be there, want to be there, you know, passionate to be there. Yeah, and and so you know, if we can create that space for them, and then survive, uh, create create an opportunity for them to thrive, then we have a, a viable operating experience. Yeah, whether there's an organisation, as a brand, as an individual, and so you know, to play with the outliers is is incredibly important. Um, you don't grow from complacency. Yeah, you don't expand by being comfortable. And so, you know, until you know that, I actually had a mentor who said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. Yeah. And I, I think it's a great way to think about how do we drive, thrive, strive, 
you know, and come alive, it can only be at the edge. Mm. Now you're talking my world. Very good. I love this. <laughs> John, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, almost every day. <laughs> I, 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 for me to even assume I know everything is, is, is not only incorrect, it's arrogant. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, we're running an event in a couple of weeks' time. I know there's things I don't know, can't do, don't know how to do. So I ask. I, I'm, I'm more than happy to be wrong. And in fact, I actively tell my team if I'm wrong, I want you to say it to my face mm -hmm. because I, I don't I don't and won't get it unless I can have a conversation around that. Um, so, you know, I, I love the fact that I don't have all the answers. I don't love the fact that I can't solve all the problems. But I mean, that's a that's a different type of scenario. <laughs> Very good. What is the one question that you would love to solve? What is the one question? Um, I think it's the same as you. What motivates people to do what they do, think what they think, and act how they act? Because mm. if we genuinely understood that, then we could, f I think we could find a not quite a common ground, but certainly a way to relate to someone in ways we couldn't before. And if we can relate to people in ways we couldn't before, that's a huge opportunity to learn, grow, and ultimately be the beginnings of, of, of peace for humanity if you want to go that far. That excites me. Wow. Very good. Who is the, who is, uh, sorry, for, for you, how would you define an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this? Gosh, gosh. Um, Jan Owen is uh, not only a wonderful human being, she's genuinely curious. She cares like you just mentioned. She is passionate about finding solutions and she's passionate about bringing everyone in to, to, to be inclusive around solving that solution. And she is the consummate leader. And, and, you know, and, and I know people that follow her everywhere because of that, that those qualities within her. So she's probably the single best example I can think of uh, at the moment. Uh, I like this. I'm actually going to, I would normally close out the session here, but I'm going to, I've got two more questions. So I'm actually going to throw in a couple <laughs> okay. of bonus ones here. All right. So right. on June the 7th, you've got curated by AI, designed by AI, marketed by AI and delivered by AI. This is a fascinating insight into exploring the intersection between technology and humanity. It's a TEDx Melbourne event. It is sold out. Um, it has a huge waiting list. Tell us a little bit more about what this TEDx event is and why we need to be leaning in. Wow. So everyone's getting a bit frothy in the mouth around AI. And I think everyone is bestowing upon it magical powers that it actually honestly can't yet do. 
And so what I wanted to discover is what, what can it do and what can't it do? That was the first question mm -hmm. I asked. Then the question is, of the things it can do, what can it do really, really well? Because they're the things you want to sort of incorporate into your existence. And then ultimately, and this comes back to just because it can, should we? Um, then the question is, well, should we be getting AI to be automating, I don't know, our marketing? Because, and because what we do is we end up with another AI that aggregates all that and distills the summary for the human. So we have AI speaking to AI to distill it ultimately to come back to a human. Like that's almost perverse. And so then the next, so then, so technology, and it always has done this, and science fiction writers have always done this, is what does technology prove about humans at a moral, philosophical, ethical, logistical uh, way that shapes and directs humanity overall? And I would argue accelerates all the good and all the bad in humanity. And I want to know what that all is. And the only way to do that is to get my hands dirty, to go and test it, and then share the learnings out of that. So while technology is the driver for the event, it's not the reason we're coming together. The reason we're coming together is, should we be allowing technology to decide, you know, um, you know, very, very fundamental things in our life. Should we trust the technology to detect cancers? Should we allow technology to share, to trick us into meaningful engagement through its clever marketing? Should we allow technology to mass produce more content? It's not as if we have a shortage of content. Should we allow technology to make fundamental decisions about, you know, knowing that it's biased, knowing that it has a limited set, knowing that it doesn't even know what it's saying, mm. should we accept it wholesale without even decide, you know, being discerning about accepting the output this technology is, is, is giving us? These are the questions we're trying to answer in this event. And I think these are questions that we should be asking ourselves before we go headlong, you know, into the sunset with, with AI in particular, thinking it's going to solve the world's problems. Yeah, I love this. The the second order consequence of artificial intelligence is that we get to understand understand ourselves as human beings better and the way we make decisions and may have made decisions in the past. Uh, I think it's profound. Uh, last question uh, for you here. Uh, what is the one TEDx talk that you have heard that people should listen to and watch because of the profound effect that it will have on the way they think and see the world? Uh, I think uh, there's a Matt Walker does a, a very unassuming but very powerful talk on sleep. Mm. Um, it totally transformed my relationship with sleep. Um, you know, I, I don't know if people know, you know, sleep affects our memory and energy, I guess are the two obvious ones, but it's been tied to heart attacks. Mm -hmm. It's been tied to uh, various cancers. It's in terms of solving, not creating. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that where, where sleep is so important that every creature on the planet does it. Mm. Yet for eight hours a day, if we were on the plains of Africa, we would be vulnerable. Yeah. Why has every single species on the planet decided to keep sleep 
an important part of his existence. It's because of the important things sleep does. And I don't think we understand that until we go and see this talk. Oh, I like that. Sleep's always been my number one priority. Oh, yes. Um, and it's even become more evident when I once I had a child. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can tell you that no endurance race or training session I've ever done or training week I've ever done in this world has ever prepared me for the the impacts of sleep uh the the fatigue impact that sleep deprivation of having a kid had on me um all for the right reasons yeah. though short term hopefully yeah totally. <laughs> very good totally totally john uh this has been a fascinating conversation um gone into areas i wasn't expecting which is great and i always love that when i have conversations with you uh how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you um I'm quite often on LinkedIn and I'm currently talking about AI on LinkedIn, but it changes over time. I like to help people think about the world they live in and I like people to explore why or why not they do things and how they could be better people. And so, you know, LinkedIn is typically where I tend to put a lot of uh, content out that I think is interesting and fascinating. Uh, if you do want to connect, which I'm happy to do, Please, please just put a comment in that you you want the reason why you want to connect because um, I don't know if you've been on LinkedIn lately. You connect with someone and you pretty much instantly get spammed. And I basically don't ex I don't accept people willy nilly anymore for that reason. Right. Um, Build rapport. But LinkedIn's your best bet. Yeah. That's great. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, John. Uh, going through you know, the journey of what made who you, who you are as a young kid and thinking about that curiosity and sound like your dad had quite a big influence on that in the way that he looked as a, looked at life in Australia as a migrant and, and then how that, how that kind of looked at our whole universe of the way we see the world to understanding, you know, how you can draw the energy from being an introvert to being really curious and but bring that alive when you need to, but knowing that you need to recover fully afterwards. And, you know, even listening to the end there, where you talk about the power of sleep and that having a profound influence on you listening to that talk, looking at the way that we need to, that the artificial intelligence is accelerating the way we need to actually consider the way we have made decisions in the past without technology you know this has been human decision making and human behavior and so it gives us a really nice time to reflect now that we have technology accelerating so fast in a way that we now need to kind of comprehend what is you know human decision making and how do we allow technology to support that or uh, how much room do we give it to uh, to advance our decision-making rightly or wrongly, but setting those boundaries is key. I think as humans, we are boundary-seeking machines in a way. I don't know if that's the right word, but boundary-seeking yeah. um, life forms. And I, I think it's yeah. important that, you know, that we are able to define those boundaries before we, because otherwise we'll keep seeking, we'll keep searching. And whether that is the right thing to do is to keep going or not. And as you say, just because we can doesn't mean we always should. 
Uh, so thank you for a great yeah. conversation. Uh, it's very enlightening. I'm sure people are thinking differently after this session. All the best for your upcoming TEDx event. I think by the time this goes live, it may have already been. Uh, but thank you for a wonderful conversation as always. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks, Craig. See you soon. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.